This is Car Expert. Now, a few years ago, Kia was a minnow compared to Hyundai. And what we've seen in the past few years is a complete change of face. The EQB is quite a quirky car because under the skin, it's built on the same chassis as the EQA and then the petrol A-Class. This Corolla Cross is sort of like what the, the modern Corolla should be, at least in terms of what the target demographic wants. Hello, Tony Crawford. G'day, Mandy, Scott. And hello, Scott Colley. G'day, Tony. I love, <laughs> love it how Croft got in there before we all did. Um, I just saw some incredible photos on your social media, Croft, about the uh, Lamborghini Urus Performante, that bright purple. Oh, oh my God. Such a cool color. Isn't well, it? there were two cool colors the purple um, and a, a very nice matte green. Yeah. It looked a bit like army green, didn't it? Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, I actually mm. prefer that to the purple, to be honest. And yeah. In terms of owning it, but the purple looked like you just wanted to eat it. edition. I don't – like if anyone's ever driven a Urus, a Lamborghini Urus, you, you would be hard-pressed to think it needed any more grunt or, or any more – uh, or any more sharpness because it was literally it created a whole new segment, the super sports SUV segment. Effectively, no one had been there before, and no one could believe what that thing could achieve on a racetrack of all things. So, uh, and it's, you know they, they've gone and up the ante in this thing. Not really with the amount of pace they've dropped the pace from three point six to three point three, which brings it line ball with. The Aston Martin DBX 707 and the Porsche, considerably cheaper Porsche, uh, KN Turbo GT, and uh, which is about a hundred thousand cheaper. Uh, this is four sixty five wow. plus 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 <laughs> plus taxes <laughs> plus on roads plus everything. So I suspect if you go with the ad personum options, of which there are a zillion, um, you could be up at around five fifty on road. Um, that makes the uh, the Aston Martin DBX 707 quite cheap in itself, but of course the Porsche isn't a Lamborghini Urus. Well, Croft, I've driven a regular. I can't believe there's now a boring regular Urus, but <laughs> a regular Urus at Phillip Island, and it blew me away. It, yeah. it was so much faster and so much more capable than I expected. Yeah, mental. What needed changing in the Performante anyway. I just can't imagine how they've gone. That wasn't enough, and given it more. Probably nothing, but given they have a performante uh, precedent in their Urukan, um they probably had uh, a bunch of wealthy customers, cashed up customers, wanting more and wanting more bragging rights, I suspect. <laughs> but uh, as I said, it's not really about the pace. Um, you know, three tenths is nothing, and it, as I said, gets it line ball with its competitors. According to um, uh, according to all the engineering heads. Um, woven more and um, and uh, forgotten the other guy's name, but woven is the the key head of engineering, and um, he is a passionate individual. He's German, but he is a passionate individual about Lamborghini. And you know, everything's just sharper, steering sharper, throttle response is sharper. Uh, it's an easier car for that. And, of course, it's lighter by 47 kilos where every kilo matters in this um, 
150 ton vehicle. Um, uh, you know, it, it, just to give you an idea, the Bentley Bentayga speed is about 2.5, 2.490 tons. So it, it is a bit, it is considerably uh, less heft, less, less weight than its rivals, if you like. Um, Aston Martin is heavier than that as well. So, um, but this is not about that. This is about how fast you can get it around a track. Um, and on the rally track, I should say, because what we have now in the Tamburo, the Tamburo, however you want to pronounce that, um, which is the drive mode selector, you now have rally. And we did try that. So we, we went, uh, we walked up an old Roman road, apparently it's 3000 years old, uh, apparently this particular road to a little sort of, um, a makeshift rally track and uh, you put it in this mode and it gets quite slidey and a lot of fun I might add I'm not sure how many owners that forked out 550 will want to go and rally their <laughs> Urus Performante but uh, for the sake of having fun in your very expensive SUV the uh, the Lamborghini Urus Performante was more than capable and uh, of sliding it around uh, a fairly uh, a fairly tactical um, uh, rally track. And, you know, what makes the Urus so special is you hop in and, and this is all now Black Alcantara uh, and it always sounds better in the, in the Italian name, Nero. You know, it's just wonderful descriptions that mean nothing but Black Alcantara. And um, <laughs> that apparently is to cut the glare on the dash as well when you're on track. Uh, so there's all sorts of things they've done. Uh, they've they now here's the here's the really interesting thing engineering wise. They've cut out the air suspension, three stage air suspension, and they have put in steel springs. And and of course we don't know what they're like on the road. We only track tested it, and that gives more linearity apparently. So again, it was a much easier car to drive, very very quick on track. And there you have um, the Lamborghini Urus Performante. I don't know whether there'll be a, a higher grade one eventually, but you never know. Time to talk about this week's car news with Jack Quick. G'day, Jack. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Good, thank you. We start off with the 2023 BMW M2 has now officially been revealed. Yes, Mandy, that's exactly right. And it does look very controversial is how I would put it in my eyes. <laughs> I so, <yeah>. love it. <laughs> so, yeah, um, BMW has revealed uh, the new M2, um, which has bits and pieces from the larger M3 and M4. The good news is it's coming here. It's going to be in uh, coming in the second quarter of next year, and it's going to be starting at $119,900 before on-road costs. And um, this new M2 is longer, wider, and lower than the previous generation. So kind of sounds like a Daft Punk song. <laughs> um, so power, power comes from a three-liter twin power turbo inline six-cylinder engine, um, which is shared with the M3 and M4, but it's detuned to produce 338 kilowatts and 550 uh, newton meters of torque, which is only slightly less than um, in the M3 and M4. As standard, there's going to be an eight-speed M-Steptronic automatic transmission, but here's the good bit. There's going to also be, there is, not going, there is a six-speed manual option if you prefer that as well. Yes. <laughs> and um, regardless, it's still rear-wheel drive and there's an active M uh, differential. 
And another thing is the it has a 50-50 weight distribution, so you can go sliding as much as you like. And um, there's heaps of body stiffening and reinforcements too. Now, um, on the design front, which is where it gets a little bit uh, tricky in my eyes, um, I'm not convinced yet. I, I think I just need to take a little bit more time with the design. It's very boxy, very muscle car-like, and I'm guessing there's lots of people that do love it, but there's also people that don't like it. But I want to know, guys, what do you think of the new M2? I think for me, this is actually a design success from BMW. Um, the IXM, sorry, the XM we were talking about a couple of weeks ago for me is a bit of a mess. Again, I think the previous M2 was a little bit cleaner to look at. It was a little bit more like elegance, probably the wrong word about a compact, muscly sports car, but it was a little more elegant. But based on the photos BMW's released of this thing in red, I actually quite like how serious and planted and chunky it looks. And Hopefully in person, it's one of those cars where some of the details that really dominate in the photos kind of mesh a bit more together. So yeah, in the last sort of three weeks, I've got BMW at 50-50 now. It's one one that's lost one. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, I love this. I mean, I think it's progressive. They haven't gone with the beaver teeth uh, grill, which is great. Um, it's got, you can tell it's got a lot more air intake uh, at the front. So it's a lot more serious vehicle. We actually saw this uh, vehicle about four months ago and I, when I was in Germany, camoed, unfortunately. And I think that's where all the negativity came from is when we only saw this car in camo and it didn't look good. And when they peeled all that crap off, um, this thing looks very, very purposeful. And, um, you know, 285s on the rear, 275s up front, 400 mil. I oh, know, maybe I'm getting that confused, the brake. I uh, don't know how big the front rotors are. They're going to be good stoppers anyway, you guarantee mm-hmm. it. But, um, no, I, I really think they've, they've – I think they've created something really good. And as everyone says, it's, we're only looking at picks at the moment and it's always difficult. But, you know, generally in the middle they look better. So – I think it's only – I think we're going to be in for a surprise with this vehicle. I think it's going to be um, – one of the head guys said to me it's really quick on track. So uh, I'm, I'm so looking forward to uh, track testing this thing. Mm, certainly looks like a track weapon. Uh, Jack Polestar has revealed its very first SUV. Yes, yes. A Polestar has revealed its third car, um, funnily enough, called the Polestar 3, uh, which is a a sleek five-seat SUV. And um, here's the good news. It's set to be coming to Australia in 2024. So we're going to be waiting just a little bit, but it is coming eventually. So the launch models of the Polestar 3 are set to receive a dual-motor all-wheel drive um, electric powertrain with total system outputs of 360 kilowatts and 840 newton metres, which can be bumped up to 380 kilowatts and 910 newton metres of torque with the optional performance pack. So you're uh, going to be going pretty quick in this uh, Polestar SUV. So, Jack, do we know how quick it is? Because that's some serious mumbo coming out of that battery. <laughs> it's roughly uh, five seconds, 4.7 seconds, uh, zero to 100. So not necessarily quick, but not uh, necessarily slow as well as what I would say. So um, no, I, I think that kind of pace, you know, as Scully said, it's a big unit, you know, bordering on the size of an XC90 type thing or EX90, but... 
Um, I, I think it's fast enough and, you know, that that's a whole other argument. We'll have one other day about how quick these electric vehicles are getting and are they too fast and all that. But um, to give you an idea, the IX M50 I think is around uh, 5, 5.1. And I think the M60 is very quick. At uh, we 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 clocked three point five below three point five actually in that vehicle. So uh, I just thought with that amount of grunt coming out of the battery, it would be slightly quicker. But you know who knows. Yeah, but um, from my understanding, I'm not certain if um, outright straight line speed is the the main goal with maybe the Polestar 3. I might be speaking out of line here, but um, powering the, the Polestar 3 is a huge um, 111 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery from Cattle um, with a 400 volt um, electrical architecture with um, claimed range of up to 610 um, kilometers, which is kind of crazy from an electric car. I mean, granted, it does have a huge battery, so you kind of expect a large uh, claimed range uh, figure, but that's a fair bit for a heavy car that weighs mm. 2.6 tonnes. But it can also tow uh, 2.2 tonnes as well, so it's a pretty serious, I would say, almost tourer, not, uh, maybe not necessarily a performance car, but definitely something that can... Uh, you can like a lifestyle vehicle you can take whatever you want with your family you can go as fast as you like and um yeah scott uh, i think the one thing to keep in mind with this being a tourer is range um we saw recently a test on car and driver i believe it was and they put a gmc hummer ev a ford f-150 lightning and a rivian r1t to the test with a big trailer on the back it was an airstream caravan from memory and in the best case scenario, the car lost about half of its range when it was towing. Um, mm. I realise that's not perfectly relevant to the Polestar thing, but yeah, that is something we need to keep in mind with these big SUVs. Maybe they will tow two and a half or three and a half tonnes, but that only works if the boat ramp is quite close to home at the moment with the way these the, the range is really eaten up by towing. I'll just mention one more quick thing with the Polestar 3. It also has an optional pilot pack, um, which comes with a, a state-of-the-art LiDAR sensor, three cameras, four ultrasonic sensors, and also camera cleaning. So this is, um, in the end, from my understanding, going to be helping with more uh, autonomous driving assist along highways and things like that. So it has a lot of redundancies building off what we talked about last week with the Tesla. So it's got the LiDAR, it's got the sensors, got the cameras. So all of those uh, the, all of the hardware is helping the car see where it's going. So if one system goes down, it knows how to have redundancy and backs up with one another. So um, take that, Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> how much? We don't know the actual cost of this vehicle locally, do we? From my understanding, um, there is expected pricing at this stage. So it's expected to be around $140,000. Um, we'll have to wait and see if that eventuates, whether that's going to be more or less or whether that's going to be entry level, top of the range. I imagine it'll be entry level, but um, yes, uh, 140 grand at this stage. Um, maybe just wait and have to wait and see. Scott, do you look, have any I, more? Sale I look more? at 135 or 140 grand, and I think that's pretty reasonable. I know that electric cars are more expensive than petrol cars at the moment, and that's going to be the case for a little while. If that's but, the case, and the uh, that pilot pack doesn't blow it out, and other options, you know. Look, potentially, but even then, I mean, the base model with a pilot pack on there for another five grand at 140 or 145 offers more performance than an X5 M50D. 
well, yeah. arguably offer more interior space because of the EV platform. I think it looks fantastic too. Mm-hmm. I think apples for apples with performance cars or performance SUVs from BMW, Porsche, Audi, I think that's quite a good deal. And Polestar's never said that it's going to be building electric cars for everybody. The Polestar 2 is reasonably affordable, but ultimately mm. they're pitching themselves as a luxury and a performance brand. So why does it need to be cheap? Yeah, I agree. And um, it does look sensational both inside and out. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I like the range. I mean, if we've jumped beyond the 600K driving range, well, then, you know, it starts to make a great case for itself, doesn't it, um, about not stopping. I've been driving a Taycan uh, actually um, for uh, Sport Turismo. And, um uh, I must admit, there's such a great feeling not know, knowing you don't have to call into a petrol station and spend 140 bucks. And um, you know, I haven't. I've been on it for three or four days, and I haven't. I've still got 250 k's left, so I haven't even thought about range anxiety or anything like that. I, I, what I have thought about is saving. You know, the the the, the difference between 18 dollars to fill it with electricity and 130 to fill an equivalent size performance car up. Uh, it's Corf, I thought your skin was looking sort of dewy and beautiful today. That must be the relaxation that comes with an electric car. It's 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 relaxed your whole complexion. It has, it has, Scully. But I do drive it in a fairly um, advanced state. Um, things are the ante is upped. Let me just say, I do love everything about electric vehicles. I have to say, I'm, I'm, I took four people that had come to look at my Mustang. And um, they were blown away by the electric Porsche. They they could not believe something could go like this. So you're either the world's worst or best salesman based on that. They came for a V8 muscle car and they walked away with an electric Porsche. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's an incentive. Well, we're going to stick to some more EV news finally here, Jack. We've got longer to wait for Toyota's first EV to come to Australia. Yes, Mandy, that's right. So Toyota's first electric vehicle, the the BZ4X, you might have heard about it before, has been delayed for a second time now. So we're now going to be expecting the BZ4X. It's due in the second half of 2023. So it's a delay of more than 12 months. <laughs> so um, the reason for this is there's been uh, issues globally um, with a wheel hub bolt issue, which has caused um, the wheels to fall off. <laughs> and it's also sparked a huge recall and um, also stopped productions uh, for months. And um, only recently I wrote a story last week um, that production has restarted um, and as the solution was found for the issues to make the wheels not fall off, which I think would be kind of a a given, but apparently it took months to kind of figure out what the issue was. And um, so, yeah, it's it's unclear why um, this delay exactly, that was just kind of speculation. But um, there could also be, because production was stopped for so long, there's a whole heap of back orders now from um, a whole heap of other markets where it's offered including Japan and North America and places like that. Um, All of this kind of follows um, a passionate speech um, by Toyota Australia Vice President of Sales and Marketing, Sean Hanley, who um, said uh, Toyota isn't opposed to battery electric vehicles and doesn't see itself as lagging behind. I've got a good quote here um, where Mr. Hanley said, we believe right now that the solution is a diversity of products and to empower drivers. So in other words, We'll have a battery electric vehicle for some customers. Some will have hybrid electric vehicles, 
others fuel cell electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids. So yeah, it's not it's delayed its first ever electric vehicle, but it, um, Mr. Hanley's saying that the Toyota's had a whole range of, uh, I want to say, zero emissions and low emissions vehicles for for decades now, and just the, because it's been delayed by a little bit. I say a little bit, by 12 months. Um, there isn't a reason to call Toyota, to say that Toyota is lagging behind um, in particular. But um, I want to know, guys, will the BZ4X be out of date when it arrives, seeing it's 12 months away now? Look, I think the BZ4X might already be out of date. Um, I've had a sit in a Subaru Solterra, which is a BZ4X with different badges, and it's quite cramped in the rear. The interior feels quite conventionally Toyota. The range and the performance don't look standout on either of the cars. Again, we need to reserve judgment until we've driven the thing. But Toyota's got some huge electric car plans. It's got a massive range of concepts it wants to roll out between now and 2030. Um, and the BZ4X is the one that sets the tone. It is the first electric Toyota we're going to get in Australia. So uh, I think there is a risk there. They're running a little behind the pace already. I think the other thing worth mentioning with Sean Hanley's comments there are, although they're controversial in the sense that the industry is moving towards fully electric power and to say otherwise is seen as being, I suppose, anti-progress, but there is some logic to what he's saying about a diverse mix of fuels. Because if we're talking heavy vehicles, it's widely accepted that hydrogen is one of the big options that fleets are going to need to adopt. And if we're talking cars like the Ranger and the Hilux and the sort of fit-for-purpose trucks for the fleets that use them, there's not yet an electric alternative that can be built in the quantities required and has the range required to tow long distance or to haul in the mines all day. That's not to say that it won't exist, and that's not to say that people aren't working on it. But I do think that some of what Toyota and Sean Hanley are saying there about, well, we're going to keep building fit-for-purpose vehicles until we can build a different vehicle for that purpose is, is sensible and practical, even if it's not as exciting or as forward-thinking as what some other brands are saying. Well, we haven't quite wrapped up news yet, but we will let Jack Quick go. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bandy. And our last story, as we said farewell to Jack, we will say hello to Mike Costello. Hello. Look at me, this fly-by-night, and just sort of sitting in to talk about one story and leaving again. <laughs> but it's an interesting story, and I love that you decided to do this. You decided to step back in time mm. to see how that battle between Kia and Hyundai have been going the last 10 years. Yeah, so Hyundai and Kia, it's commonly thought that they're actually the same company, which is not quite true. Hyundai is just a major shareholder in Kia, but for all intents and purposes, vehicles are very similar, shared parts, um, very similar, similar, similar brands. Now, a few years ago, Kia was a minnow compared to Hyundai. It was almost a rounding error compared to Hyundai. And what we've seen in the past few years is a complete change of face. We've seen Kia's products get a lot better. We've seen market acceptance for Kia grow at a rate of knots. And as a result, uh, Kia has steadily been catching up to the point where in 2022, what was once the little brother is actually outselling the big brother. So Kia is ahead of Hyundai year to date. And if you told somebody that back in 2013, they'd look at you like you uh, had rocks in your head. So Kia's market share 10 years ago was 2.6% versus 8.5% for Hyundai. Wow. So less than a third. 
Yet uh, this year, as I said, Kia's market share has actually eclipsed Hyundai. So to the end of September, Kia has registered 60,200 cars against 58,100 from Hyundai. And this puts Kia in fourth place on the sales charts and right on the hammer of Mitsubishi in third place, you know, very close to overtaking Mitsubishi and has relegated Hyundai into fifth position. And I've got a line graph on the story if anybody wants to go to the site carexpert.com.au and check that out. Showing the enormous gap between the two and the steady, steady closing of that gap. So this has not been a one-year flash-in-the-pan type thing. Kia has been eating into Hyundai progressively over the years. Now, Hyundai does have bragging rights in some segments. So the i30 outsells the Serato and the Kona outsells the Seltos. But Kia turns the tables with the Carnival, which smashes the Staria, the Stonich, which beats the Venue, the Sportage has outsold the Tucson this year, and the Sorento has outsold the Santa Fe. And of course, the two brands do have some product differences as well. Kia is very strong at the cheaper end of the market with the Picanto and the Rio. It also has the Stinger sedan, whereas Hyundai is the only company with a proper hot hatch, the i20N. Uh, It's also got the Palisade, even larger SUV, and of course, the Staria work van and Kia has no commercial vehicles whatsoever. So it's not quite like for like, but there are quite a few similarities in there. Um, Hyundai is also ahead of Kia when it comes to the electric car sales race with its Ionic 5 and Kona ahead of the EV6 and Nero. But nevertheless, to have a look at the extraordinary growth of Kia over a few years' time is a real story in and of itself. And uh, while Hyundai would probably diplomatically say, you know what, as long as somebody uh, from our group is selling the vehicle, we don't really mind, but I know that internally at Hyundai, they're terribly annoyed about this and it's going to be interesting to see how they respond to this challenge. Moko, do you think this means maybe we'll be able to get some deals on Korean cars coming into the end of 2022? It's been so hard to get a good price on a new car, but if head office from both these brands is pushing dealers to sell, maybe that opens the door. Potentially. I mean, I guess it's going to be supply, right? So Hyundai would certainly have every incentive in the world. I mean, I don't fancy being the boss of Hyundai Australia, having to explain to my paymasters in Seoul why a little old Kia outsold me in Australia last year. That wouldn't be an easy conversation to have. So I think it goes without saying that Hyundai, despite what it would say publicly, would be you know moving heaven and earth to try and get its hands on some stock so that it can sell that stock and beat Kia. Um, now, that might mean that there's a flood of i30s hitting the market soon. We haven't heard anything in particular, but there's no doubt that Hyundai will be trying to do everything it can. So it will definitely be one to watch for come uh, end of year. Michael, what would you put down to Kia's success? What are they doing right I think it's somewhat to do with the cars themselves and somewhat to do with the perception of the cars. So the seven-year warranty was an enormous stepping point. You know, seven-year warranties are quite common now, but when Kia launched its seven-year warranty, it was the only brand that had one. And I think that gave a lot of people permission to have a look at the brand that perhaps hadn't before. But then you also have a look at the design language of its new vehicles, the technology in its new vehicles, infinitely superior to what they were five or ten years ago. It's no longer a cut-price brand. I mean, Kias aren't really any cheaper than Hyundai or Mazdas, Toyotas, they're the same price essentially. So it's not really about value anymore. These cars are selling because they're actually desirable. And then I think also it's that whole thing about the more people that buy into a brand, the more that you can then exponentially increase the sales from there because, you know, your friend has probably bought one or someone in your family has bought one and it sort of builds from there. So it's really, it's really sort of, I guess, 
done the same trajectory as Hyundai did in the early day and grown a lot. What's interesting is Hyundai hasn't been able to kind of maintain the rage. And if anything, it's actually gone backwards in recent times with some really stiff competition. Sorry, Moko, one quick question. Um, I'm surprised that Kona is outselling Seltos given the fanfare and the the addiction that people had to Seltos because it was bigger and it was better looking and all that. Yeah, yeah, I'm a bit surprised by that too. I'd have a Seltos over a, a Kona every day of the week. I suspect much of that is due to supply. Um, um, Seltos has been quite supply restricted. It's mm. a bit newer in its life cycle than the Kona. There is an update to that vehicle coming in the fourth quarter of this year as well, which looks like a really good update. So those things combined, I would expect the Kia to probably edge the Hyundai into next year. If you'd like to know more, you can click the story at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, Mike Costello. Always a pleasure, guys. We mentioned last week James Wong was attending the Toyota Corolla Cross launch, and this week we can finally talk about what the car is like. Hello, J-Lo. Hello, team. What is the Corolla Cross, and where does it sit in the Toyota range? So the Corolla Cross is like basically when you cross a Corolla with an SUV. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> no. Actually, no, actually pun intended. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like, you know, you sort of take a Corolla hatch slash wagon and give it like the Subaru XV or Subaru Outback treatment. It's, it's very much a hatchback on stilts. And um, it sort of follows the trends set by the smaller Yaris Cross. So I think Toyota is trying to, you know, unify its naming structure globally and, and, you know, give a bit more recognition to some of its newer models. And so in terms of where it sits in the lineup, it, it, it slots between the CHR, which is almost like a Corolla Cross Coupe, and then the larger RAV4, which is probably has more in com- common with a Camry. So it's, it's on the larger side of small, if that if even is a thing. And it's sort of sized something close to maybe like a Nissan Qashqai. So it's um, about 4.4 metres long, um, you know, decent four-seater, big boot, um, and then a lot of styling and design cues that are shared with uh, the Corolla family uh, in passenger car form. Um, so how does the, the price compare to its rivals? Um, so it's quite an interesting range structure. It starts from 33000 dollars dead plus on road costs for the base GX petrol um, and you can also get a hybrid for 35,500 plus on road costs which means you can actually get into a hybrid Corolla Cross for under $40,000 drive away at least based on a Melbourne postcode. Uh, in terms of where it sits with rivals, the, the base GX um, being in the low to mid $30,000 bracket is probably um, a little bit higher than the base price of some rivals. Um, you've got things like the Kia Seltos, uh, but well, the pre-facelift Kia Seltos, the Hyundai Kona and the MG ZS all starting below the $30,000 mark. But in terms of how the, even the base model is equipped, it's probably more in line with some of those mid-spec rivals anyway. And it actually also offers a cheaper hybrid option than even the CHR does. So the CHR is only available in Australia with a hybrid um, and a 1.8 litre hybrid at that in its top spec trims, which and they're priced from about $37,500. So you can actually get into a, um, a, a base and even mid-spec Corolla Cross hybrid for same, if not less money, than you can for a CHR. Um, so it's actually, when you, when you look at it from like a price and features perspective and also the fact that the hybrids get the more powerful two-litre powertrain as opposed to the 1.8 that we've seen in the CHR and the Corolla, it's actually not bad value. 
And in terms of, you know, specific to the hybrid, because every variant in the range has at least one hybrid option and, and overall there are actually more hybrid options than there are petrols, the Corolla Cross is really compelling because, you know, rivals with hybrid drivetrains are either more expensive or much more limited in, in offerings and availability. So th- I reckon they're really onto something here. And they even said themselves that that base hybrid at $35,500 is expected to take be the most popular model with about 40% of sales. And when they're projecting, you know, 15% market share with this vehicle, which would equate to about, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 vehicles per month or um, units per month, that's a lot of cars and that's a lot of hybrid ones specifically. So, um, yeah, I think it's really competitive. They've, they've made it this really good size, um, really good range spread as well, um, and I think that they could really be onto a, a new favourite. So the Corolla has long been one of Australia's favourite cars and Australians love SUVs. Are we looking at a new bestseller? Yeah, so to, to expand on the previous question, I think that but this Corolla Cross is sort of like what the, the modern Corolla should be, at least in terms of like, you know, what the, the target demographic wants. The, the Corolla nameplate itself is easily one of the most, if not the most popular nameplates in automotive history. You know, across the world, everyone knows what the Corolla is. It, it, there's been various forms and shapes over its lifetime. Um, but now that the, um, the world is so hungry for SUVs and crossovers, and, you know, in Australia, we're really following that trend, as you can see from the sales charts to the Utes or SUVs. Um, I think that this is, you know, what the new Corolla for the people is going to look like because we've we've steadily seen um, the decline of passenger vehicles of late. The Corolla and the Mazda three used to be the one and two top selling vehicles in in the country, and they were so for a really really long time. Um, once the Falcon and Commodore started to drop off a little bit, and now you're seeing it's like either the Rav four or like a Hilux. So I think that if they can get enough supply of this, it, it could even outsell Rav four given the supply constraints on that at the moment. So what about the way that it drives? Does it just feel like a taller Corolla? Pretty much. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's really got that Corolla feel. Even the interior looks and feels a lot like a Corolla. You're, you're sitting at about 130 mil or you're, you're, the driver's line of sight specifically is about 130 millimetres higher than a Corolla. Um, and obviously the body's a bit taller and, and the overall ride height is a little bit higher as well so you do feel like you are sitting up a little bit but it doesn't quite have a full suv um, driving position so you're sort of elevated without it being lofty if that makes sense um, and it also um, can depend on which model you're driving so if you get in if you get into one of the um, higher end grades with like really wide range of setting adjustment you can get it quite low um, so it sort of feels a little bit more like a normal hatchback but it takes you know all the really capable parts of the Corolla that new um, Toyota new global architecture platform is excellent in pretty much everything that it underpins um, and specific to the Corolla Cross it's a really nice balance of comfort there's a little bit of um, you know, dynamism dialed in there um, because Toyota is really going on about this whole fun to drive thing. Um, having the more powerful two liter hybrids actually quite punchy. They, they reckon you can do zero to hundred in about seven and a half seconds, which not long ago was like, you know, golf GTI quick. Um, you know, you have the option of all wheel drive as well. So if you want to go to the snow and currently if you have a Corolla, it's front wheel drive only regardless of whether you get a petrol or a hybrid so you know you want to go to the snow or you drive on unsealed roads often here's your um option because you can get that uh all-wheel drive hybrid drivetrain uh it doesn't necessarily you know 
inspire the senses or you know knock your socks off in any which area but i think that's part of what the corolla branding is it just does everything well and reliably and it's a very just no nonsense no frills car to 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 live with and you know we drove it out of sydney to the northern the most northern point of the northern beaches up near like whale beach and um you know there was quite a mix of roads that we encountered we were on some you know out of city highways into really densely populated um suburbia um a mix of you know park roads beach out um roads right next to the beach speed pumps potholes water you know asphalt dirt all sorts of things and you know it's obviously just been raining heavily in sydney so there's a lot of stuff on the road similar things uh, conditions in melbourne now it just sort of did everything but without necessarily you know i wasn't sitting behind the wheel grinning and laughing and giggling like you know i would be if i was driving a sports car but you know for the target demographic it just it's it's a it's a no-brainer it just does everything so well what about the tech inside? Because Toyota's working on a number of updates across the range that will hopefully finally give it a modern infotainment system. I think the Corolla Cross is the first to get it locally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How does it stack up? So, yeah, one thing that I know that we've all complained about in previous Toyota and Lexus reviews is just how behind the infotainment systems can feel sometimes. And um, this new Corolla Cross has Toyota's latest infotainment system, which is sort of rolling out globally, not just in Australia. Um, and it gets new displays that are higher resolution, a new look interface. Um, they're all connected as well. So all versions feature um, the latest version of Toyota Connect services, which brings app-based functionality. So you can turn the car on and off. You can flash the lights, beep the horn, send navigation instructions to your uh, multimedia system. And it's even got an onboard um, intelligent voice assistant. So you can say like, hey, Toyota, um, put the temperature to this or say that I'm cold and it'll bring up the temperature. You can say, I want the driver's window open and it will open the window for you. And you can also put in navigation instructions for vehicles equipped with navigation. Um, so this, that specifically um, is a is a 12-month uh, complimentary subscription with purchase. And then from there, there's a range of different subscription packages with various levels of um, content in them so that once you go past that period, you can continue those services if you see fit. Um, similar to what we're seeing with some of the premium brands, you look at like Audi and Mercedes, a lot of them have similar features, and but they offer longer complimentary subscription periods. Um, but it's pretty cool to see this um, filtering out to other mainstream brands. Really, the only other brand before Toyota to offer that level of connected functionality was Ford with the Ford Pass Connect system, which is now available pretty much range-wide. Um, and this goes a step further with having a proper like onboard assistant um, that can do those sort of functions as well. So it re- really was a big improvement for the um, short time that we spent with the vehicle. And all of the instrument clusters are also digitized. So the base ones um, get an, a seven-inch cluster that's very similar to the one in the Lexus NX. And then if you get the top spec Atmos, um, it has a 12.3-inch all-digital cluster with a range of different um, displays and layouts. So you can have you know, map instructions, 10 by 10 navigation, um, hybrid system information so you can see where your energy is going at any given point. So you know, it really is a big improvement. Is it you know, a new segment benchmark in terms of tech? Maybe not quite. Um, you know, it's still very conventional in how it's laid out. It doesn't really you know, uh, break the mold in any of those areas, but it definitely brings the Corolla to you know, up to standard and if not the forefront with the level of um, kit that it's got on board now, which is, which is really good to see. And we're, hopefully we'll see that in um, other models really soon. Joe, did Toyota say what sort of demographic they're, they're aiming at with this car? 
Uh, not really. And, you know, we asked them a few questions about, you know, uh, sales projections, supply and all that. And they, they kept a bit um, quiet on that front. I think um, given what they're experiencing at the moment with RAV4, it might be them just sort of trying not to make too many promises and, and not trying to, <laughs> you know, call out specific groups in the in the ho- in the fear of, you know, not being able to deliver. I think, you know, this, just how I see it, this car appeals to anyone that would be normally looking at a small SUV. You know, the CHR was a little bit out there. For, I know from a lot of friends that have shopped in that segment, the CHR is really out there in terms of its styling. So it turns some people off. Um, it's also a little bit on the compact side. So those who might have kids or be planning to have kids they want to have a big rear window easy access to the rear the second row or if they're carting around grandparents or something like that they need a a better size second second row seat to accommodate that i think this addresses a lot of the issues that people had with the chr it's got a bigger boot um more hybrid availability and bigger back seat with you know air vents and um you know extra usb ports depending on the grade that you get uh it's it, it, it appeals to anyone who buys a Corolla. You know, you look at the Corolla demographic. The Corolla appeals to everyone. Same way that, you know, a Golf or, you know, some of those more, you know, well-known name plates just have such a wide spread of, of you know, touch points in terms of the ages, genders, countries that they they dominate in. So I think that the Corolla Cross just builds on that by making it a form factor that is, you know, in fashion right now. And so I think even though like I said earlier, it doesn't necessarily set the world on fire with with its abilities or its, you know, um, competency in any given area. It just fits the bill for so many people and, you know, I think that's what's going to make it so successful. That review is live at carexpert.com.au. Thank you very much, James Wong. Thanks for having me. Scully, you've recently driven Australia's most affordable EV with seven seats, the Mercedes-Benz EQB. Uh, what were your first impressions behind the wheel? My first impressions were, wow, this is Australia's only EV with seven seats for the moment. (laughs) For Um, the moment. (laughs) I I know that that is a pretty lazy answer, but the EQB is quite a quirky car because under the skin, it's built on the same chassis as the EQA and then the petrol A-Class. But it's actually bigger than the EQA significantly, and it's almost as big as the EQC. It's a really chunky little car with its sort of boxy G-Wagon-like body, and then you have a look at it and you go, oh, it looks like a Merc. It feels like a Merc. The, the real point of difference here is the seven seats. I will say it's a better looking car in person than I expected. I've seen a base model petrol GLB and I thought it looked a little bit awkward. It was sort of mm, hanging over the, the side of its wheels and it was a bit overhangy and it just looked like a teenager that needed to grow into itself. And the EQB that we get in Australia is on 19 or 20 inch wheels. It's got some of the styling touches on it. I, th- I think it's gone through puberty and it finally has sort of <laughs> filled out its proportions. Those wheels give me a headache just thinking about cleaning them. How many spokes do those things have? Incredible. The car would actually be 20 grand cheaper if they didn't have to get that many spokes onto one wheel. <laughs> um, Very true. This is Mercedes-Benz's new styling direction. Um, it, it's been doing similar for quite a while on AMGs, but as we move to electric cars, a lot of brands are putting really like big aero covers over their wheels and big aero covers look really awkward. If you're a premium brand, you don't want to have it look like your car's on hubcaps. So one of the solutions is to put black aero covers over the, the center of the wheel and then put a lot of colorful spokes over the outside of them. 
And it kind of looks futuristic and techy as the car glides through lights, but it also does a good job of hiding the awkward aero bits behind them. <laughs> How interesting. Um, so what sort of price are we looking at for the EQB? So the front-wheel drive base model, it's called the 250, is starts just over $86,000. Um, you pay another three grand for the seven-seat option, which is an option that I think I'd be ticking if I were buying a GLB. If you're going for the EQB 350 4MATIC, which is the more powerful all-wheel drive version, it's 106700 Um Depending on which way you look at it, that's a heap of money for an A-Class-based car or not all that much money for an electric SUV. I think it represents decent value if you buy the absolute base model and then just add the seven seats to it because it's a really good size and it's quite a unique option. I think at one hundred and six grand, only with the five-seat option, you can't option seven seats on the all-wheel drive model. Maybe that doesn't represent as much of a, a compelling deal, but yeah, we'll we'll get into why. <laughs> Scully, how much is a? I know it's going from ice to electric, but how much is a GLB thirty five? Uh, the GLB thirty five is actually quite expensive. Uh, a fair bit of Mercedes Benz's. AMG stuff has been hit with a couple of price rises. So mm. the range when you reviewed the 35 uh, a year ago, Croft, started mm. just below 90 grand. Yeah. Um, the entry-level model's around the 60 grand mark. So it, it's not a cheap car, that GLB 35, and the performance on offer in the 350 4MATIC, mm. is, it's not quite warm sort of SUV levels, but it's still a six-odd second car to 100 k's an hour. So, mm. yeah, if you are looking at a GLB 35 and you want similar performance but a cleaner conscience, uh, that <laughs> that 350 is definitely a potential alternative. Mm, mm. Mm. I, I do like the look of this thing. Sorry, what is the length of this vehicle? So it measures up at 220 mil longer than an EQA, and it's only about seven mil shorter than the EQC. I don't have the exact number in front of me at the moment, but it is quite a deceptive car to look at because all the styling cues and the bits on it have been lifted from small Mercedes, but then you see it in person and it does look quite long and quite tall. Mm. I will say Merck has done a good job disguising the fact that it's sort of a a small car wearing a big top hat. it looks really impressive up close with the AMG pack and the 20-inch wheels, and, and it doesn't look yet like it's overbodied. Hmm. Mm. Um, so how did you find the driving experience? Uh, I'm going to give you another very boring answer. It, it drives exactly how you would expect a Mercedes-Benz electric vehicle to drive. Well, I suppose that's um, a good thing. It's consistent, right? It is, exactly. Yeah, Mercedes isn't in the business of surprising its customers too often. Um, and I think the EQB will make the sort of person who wants a Merc but wants it to be electric very happy. The base 250, although it's not all that powerful relative to what you can get in something like a Tesla or that sort of thing, it's still got plenty of punch. We drove the cars two up and we drove them on the highway out to Ballarat from Melbourne. Even the base model's got 140 kilowatts and 385 newton meters and it'll do zero to 109 odd seconds. So if you're just talking about normal base model SUV numbers, they're pretty much it. Um, the 350's got 250 kilowatts and 520 newton meters. It'll do zero to 106.2 seconds. I know those outputs sound like a lot for those performance figures, but the EQB weighs more than two tons. So it is a chunky little beast of a thing, and that obviously eats into your performance somewhat. The base model is everything you'd expect it to be in terms of how smooth and quiet and comfortable it is. The ride is surprisingly excellent. Um, 
James noted this on his EQA review and I think EQC reviews I've seen as well called it out. In comfort mode, it's got this really like lovely long travel relaxed feeling and over some really average country roads, usually we expect small European cars to kind of fall apart but the EQB didn't. It was really impressive, almost to the point of maybe being a little too relaxed because it is so heavy. When you go over big crests, you sort of feel the weight of it pushing the car down and it takes a couple of movements to settle. But you can flick it into sport mode and all EQBs in Oz get adaptive dampers, which isn't the case overseas. And in sport mode, it's maybe a little bit firmer than I'd like for day to day, but it really tightens things up nicely and is still a usable mode. I think the one area where the 250 lags behind the 350 is just putting its power down. We drove these cars on Wednesday the, I want to say 12th or 13th of October. I'm slightly off the mark there. But it was the day before Victoria was plunged underwater um, and it was already raining and the roads were pretty slick. And coming out of some sort of angled side streets, you put your foot down a little bit in the 250 and you could just feel the wheels spinning and the motors sort of working out what it needs to do. If you really plant your foot at speed, it would also torque steer a little bit, which is to be expected of a front-wheel drive car on skinny eco tyres. It was nothing unbearable. You could absolutely live with it day-to-day. It's, it's not to say that the car's slippery or unsafe or anything like that. But driving the 350 afterwards, the extra punch in the back was really reassuring. And also the fact that you could really put your foot down and as soon as it realized you wanted maximum performance, the back motor would kick in and you sort of wouldn't get that tug through the wheel. So if you want maximum EQB performance, the 350 is probably the one to go for. And I think given the choice, it's the, the powertrain of the two I'd prefer. But I think this car's real point of difference is in the fact it's seven seats and it'll make a really great school run SUV. And if that's what you're after, you can only get the 250, which is cheaper and more efficient. So mm. both of these cars are comfy. I think the 250 is the one I'd be looking at. Well, I know you're a little bit bigger than a, a child, Scully, but um, what were those uh, back rows like? Uh, surprisingly good. Another one of the journos who was on the trip actually has a, a photo of me in there. Uh, I assume he <laughs> used a blackmail at some point. Um <laughs> Look, I wouldn't want to spend any time back there. Uh, and, I, and I say that not because I'm a prima donna, but I, I'm six foot seven. I'm not built to go in the back of those cars and those cars aren't built to hold me. What I will say is even compared to some much bigger seven-seat SUVs, getting into that third row is really easy. The second row slides a really long way. And even though the floor has been raised slightly relative to the petrol GLB to accommodate the battery, the step-up's really reasonable. It's actually one of the easiest seven-seaters to access that I've experienced recently, obviously not including something like a Palisade or a Kia Carnival. Um, once you're back there, because of that boxy body, there's actually enough headroom that I could sort of sit back there and not have my neck really sort of crushed. I could almost sit up completely straight. So any normal child or teenager is going to be able to get back there for shorter trips and be comfortable. And because the second row slides, you're able to free up quite a bit of legroom. It really did impress me with how much space was back there. Uh, and I think if you're – what you're buying this car for is to use the big boot and use five seats most of the time, but you do genuinely need to use the seven seats, it, it, it's not going to let you down on that front. There are mm. They are genuinely usable for kids and for smaller adults, and I think that's where this car really excels. Uh, I think the other thing worth noting about the third row seats is that in some ways they're actually better equipped than the second row. The second row, even though there's three seats there, only gets one USB port. In the third row of seven-seat versions of the car, there's two USB ports, one on each side. So 
the kids who are plonked in the back back might be a little more uncomfortable because they're <laughs> over the back axle, but they do get to have a full iPad. <laughs> um, what about the rest of the interior up front? Look, Mercedes has a formula in these cars and it hasn't shifted too far from it with the EQB. Um, we were all blown away by the A-Class when it was revealed probably three or four years ago now. And the EQB has just got a version of that cabin. It's got the same dual screen setup on the dashboard, the same little black and silver toggle switches below that, and the same little touchpad for MBUX. I find Mercedes tech hard to gel with compared to BMW and Audi tech. Um, the Merck stuff is very clever and there's a lot buried in it, but I find that swiping through it all and how you access it just takes more for my tiny brain to, to understand. <laughs> um, but with a bit of familiarity, all the tech in the EQB is very user-friendly and the Hey Mercedes voice recognition on it, I would argue is still some of the best in the business. It'll control all sorts of stuff. Mm. Um, in terms of the practicality of it, we drove these EQBs for a solid probably four or five hours in the day we were driving them. We drove the 250 and then the 350 and I hopped out the whole time feeling really fresh. Um, every Australian delivered car gets heated seats. The cars we drove all had an AMG line package on them, which gave you a bit more bolstering in the seat and some nicer trim. But even the base model has comfort seats, which in most Mercs I've driven have been completely fine. So it's a really comfortable, nice place to spend time if you are going to be doing a lot of time on the school run with kids in the back. The second row is also pretty good. Again, there's no getting away from the fact this is a sort of mid-sized SUV built on small car bones. But with a normal adult sitting in the front, it's possible for a normal adult to sit behind them comfortably. And if you are loading kids and child seats and that sort of thing in and out, the doors are big and square, the windows are massive. The only thing I will say is, and this is sort of working from memory, so we'll have to get them side by side to confirm it, but Mercedes did say that the floor is slightly higher in the EQB. And I did feel a little bit like in the back seats, my legs were up sort of wrapped around the top of the front seats almost. So the floor was a little bit high. If you're carrying around really tall teenagers, that's something they might notice. For most people, again, it's going to fly under the radar. So given the exterior dimensions of this thing, it really is impressive how much you can pack into it. And often with these mid-sized or slightly smaller than mid-sized seven-seaters, you sort of walk up to them and go, this is a really cool idea. But to make the third row work, the second row is compromised, or to make the second row work, the third row is compromised. The flexibility on offer in the GLB kind of means that isn't as much of an issue. The only real trade-off is because it is quite a small car relative to other seven-seaters, if you're using all seven seats, you're going to struggle to get much in the boot behind those third-row seats. So mm. you might get all the kids in, but they might also have to be hugging their school bags. And I don't know, if they're being annoying, maybe that's a fair punishment anyway. <laughs> well, if you'd like to know more about the Mercedes-Benz EQB, hit the site, carexpert.com.au. That's an end for this week's podcast. What have we got coming up in the garage, Scully? We've got a real mixed bag, as we do pretty much every week. Uh, down in Melbourne, we've got a Renault Colios Intense all-wheel drive, uh, which is a perfect rival for the Toyota GR86 we've got coming in manual form. Uh, we've also got a Toyota Hilux SR5, the 2023 update, which will be a perfect comparison with our Genesis Electrified G80 limousine. Um, we've got the Ford Everest Ambiente, the absolute base model coming through, and also a Skoda Kodiak Sportline all-wheel drive. That electrified G80, I'm really excited to drive. I've been driving a GV60 and I'm soon driving the GV70. 
the G80 is just so sexy on its classic retro wheels with its long sedan body. I can't wait to spend some time behind the wheel. Croft, you've got some cool stuff coming in Sydney too, I think. Yeah, I've just uh, I've actually been driving a um, Hyundai uh, diesel Tucson, but then I got into a uh, really, really cool uh, Tyke Porsche Taycan 4 Sport Turismo. It's a freaking mouthful, but um, I didn't like this vehicle uh, when I first uh, sort of glanced at it. And, you know, because I thought the Taycan is such a cool-looking vehicle, but driving this thing and seeing the space that I've got, and it's a little bit higher, the hip point, so it's not quite as low to get into. I'm really – and it's got this deep, deep liquid, sort of liquid metal silver paint, and everyone's been commenting on it. And, um, yeah, just a really cool car. I, I haven't even looked at the price yet. It's got probably no surprise, but it uh, won't be cheap. I'm, I'm not going to take a punt because I, I feel like I'm going to be slightly off and that's going to mm. upset someone somewhere <laughs> who cares but, a lot. Yeah, but um, I'm telling you now, it's like driving a Porsche. I, I don't know how they do it, these guys, but they make driving a 911. They give it the same exact feeling that you get in one of their electric wagons, so to speak. So it, it's quite miraculous what they do, you know. And where's the team off to as well? Uh, Jack Quick is actually headed off tomorrow, as we're recording this, to Fraser Island with Mazda to drive a BT50 on the sand. Wow. Very excited for him. Wow. It's the first one of these trips he's done, and I think he's got a pretty fun one coming up. Fraser Island is beautiful. Um, yeah. I'm off to Sydney to drive the Genesis Electrified GV70. Um, and then next week, uh, I'm off again, actually, to Adelaide to drive the Volvo C40 Recharge, and we've got Mike Costello driving the Audi SQ7 and SQ8 V8 petrols in Victoria. Um, big couple of weeks in the world of electric SUVs. Mm, and we're all staying in the same country for once. <laughs> I, I know. It's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, Tony Crawford and Scott Colley, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Mandy. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, guys. <laughs> 